One of the greatest Christian apologists of the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. Lewis was one of the intellectual giants of his day and arguably one of the most influential writers. He was a fellow and professor of English literature at Oxford University and wrote more than 30 books, many of which are in defense of the Christian faith. In one of his last writings, he lamented a debate he had had with Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, philosopher, and outspoken critic of Christianity. Russell was well known for his 10-page diatribe entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in Russell's debate with Lewis, he sought to discredit Christ by his own words from the Olivet Discourse, excuse me which we have in our text today, which says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Using this verse, Russell concluded that Christ was not divine, that he had no clue about the future, and that he was plain wrong about his supposed second coming. When Lewis was unable to counter Bertrand Russell's argument, he is said to have lost the debate. In a letter to a friend, reflecting on this text, C.S. Lewis said, it is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Now, it's hard to imagine such a staunch defender of the Christian faith like C.S. Lewis, calling any verse embarrassing. But what was it about this one that Lewis found indefensible? Well, if you read his antagonist's argument, Jesus taught his disciples that he would return within their lifetimes. The early church was then left anticipating a soon and physical return and the end of the world, and none of those things came to pass. And on the surface, it does seem like Jesus was wrong about this. He does say this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, what is the all to which he refers? Well, it's quite a lot if we go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. But starting in verse 8, he says they will see false Christs and false teachers and they will claim that the end is at hand. There will be wars and tumults. There will be kingdoms rising and, uh, against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There will be persecution Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And there will be distress among the nations. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And this is the big one. The Son of Man will come in a cloud with power and great glory. So all of these things... And you can review the chapter at your leisure. All of these things, Jesus says, will happen within this generation. And as we look back, more specifically, that's between the years 33 and 70 A.D. 
So was Bertrand Russell right that Jesus didn't have a clue about the future and that he misled his disciples, leading them to think he was to return in their lifetime? Now, Lewis did try to defend this by saying, well, Jesus himself said that he does not know the day nor the hour. But that argument seemed pretty weak in light of this clear statement that Jesus makes here. Now, this has certainly been seen as a challenging verse. And because of this, many Christians have tried to get Jesus off the hook for what seems to be on the surface a false prophecy. One attempt to rescue Jesus is a belief system called preterism. Preterism is the idea that the entirety of the Olivet Discourse, basically this whole chapter, was totally fulfilled in the lifetime of the apostles, which includes the final judgment and the resurrection. Preterists claim that Jesus returned in A.D. 70, He separated the sheep from the goats. He judged the living and the dead. There was the final resurrection. Satan was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus took up his throne. And we are now living in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you imagine? This is the final state. You didn't know that the new heavens and the new earth were going to include things like, oh, rape, murder, child trafficking, terrorism, wars, disease, suicide, etc. And yet there are some who believe this and they developed that set of doctrines basically around what Jesus says here. And their reasoning goes either Jesus was a false prophet or everything did come to pass, we're misreading the Bible, and we just happen to be beyond the end times. So the new heavens and the new earth, this is where we're at. And they deduce that if Jesus is wrong about this, then maybe he's wrong about the forgiveness of sins and being the Son of God and so forth. So their entire theological structure structure is propelled by this one verse. So that's one idea to try to get Jesus off the hook and make it so he's not a false prophet. Now if you go on the other side, that's one side of the ditch. If you go on the other side of the road, there's another ditch, I believe, on the other side, which errors in a different way. This position doesn't really have a name, but it interprets the entire chapter as referring to the end of the world before the end of or before the return of Christ and it virtually ignores everything about AD 70 that we've discussed over the various weeks in other words they will f- so focus on this chapter as being an end times prophecy they will ignore the first century setting and say yes yeah there's a part of it that's about the fall of the temple, but really the whole thing is a prophecy about the end and Jesus is talking about the last days and particularly the great tribulation. And so a de-emphasis is made on what Jesus is teaching his original audience and an over-emphasis is made on what Jesus is saying about the end of the world. 
And for those who hold to this view, they have a clever way of getting around what Jesus says here. Jesus said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And so they propose that this generation means the generation that witnesses all of those things. So in other words, instead of talking to the group in front of them saying this generation, he means this generation that sees all of those signs that he's talking about. In other words, this generation means that generation, that future generation. The generation that is alive at the beginning of those events that Jesus described, also known as the Great Tribulation, will not pass away. Now, I've never liked this argument before because it seems that if Jesus meant that generation who's alive at the end, he would have said that generation. He could quite easily say that generation or the generation that sees those signs or something like that. And if he's talking to a group of disciples in the first century and he says this generation, how are they to interpret what he's saying? In other words, one principle of interpreting Scripture is you've got to put yourself in the first century and be hearing this for the very first time. Would Jesus go through all of these events, the wars and the diseases and the, the Jerusalem surrounded and all this stuff, and then say this generation will not pass until all these things have happened, and they're supposed to think, oh, he's talking about thousands of years from now. I don't think so. So I've always found that unconvincing. Others try to get Jesus off the hook by saying the word generation can also mean something else. I used to have an NIV, and it had a footnote at generation, and the footnote read at the bottom also means race. My ESV does not have that footnote. But the argument goes, what Jesus is saying here is that this race, meaning the Jews apparently, will not pass away until all that he has talked about has been fulfilled. Now, there's a couple of reasons I think this is not a good interpretation. And the main one being, yes, there is a lexical possibility that you could get the word race out of the Greek word genea, but there are 43 uses of it in the New Testament, and none of those uses translates it that way. It's always generation. And when you're interpreting Greek, you always want to go with the primary definition unless you have information in the context that would lead you to think otherwise. There's got to be strong evidence leading you to think that another application of that word is warranted. And I don't think it is here. In fact, the Je Jehovah's Witnesses are masters at this. They will stretch the lexical possibilities of a word to make their doctrine fit in the Bible. And so if you ever look in a dictionary, you know, you've got your primary definition, there's a secondary, there's a third, there's a fourth, there's a fifth, and they'll, you know, go down all of those and, you know, they'll use a definition that is not the normal definition they would have used. So they pour a different meaning into it. I think we should run from that practice. 
And another reason I think it's a bad argument is how is this making some kind of profound statement that this people, the Jews, will be around till the end? How is it some kind of interesting, profound thing to say, you know, this people, the Jews, yeah, when the end comes, they're still going to be around. Okay. I don't think that's a good argument. And still others try to get Jesus off the hook here by saying that uh, generation here means starting at A.D. 70 and the destruction all the way till the end of the world. In other words, generation is a long period of time like we would call an age or an era or an epoch. So generation here, they play with the definition again and they're saying, well, it doesn't mean a biblical generation like 40 years. What, the, what Jesus really means is from the time of the temple's destruction all the way to the end. And they use this big... Um, long period of time to try to get it so that Jesus is not saying this group in front of him. And I find all of these explanations unconvincing. I think it makes far more sense to take what Jesus said at face value and not try to complicate things unnecessarily. So let's put ourselves in the first century, sitting at the feet of Jesus, where he answers their question back in verse 7. When will these things be? The whole rest of the chapter is answering their question, as we have seen. And what does Jesus say over and over? When you, when you, when you, when you see this, when you see that. He's talking to a group of people. And he wraps it all up by saying that it will all take place in this generation. And as the first century audience heard it, they are not going to be trying to change what he said. They're not going to say, I wonder what he means when he says generation. They are all listening and believing and thinking, wow, this is at hand. Now, I've argued since the series began that we are to view this prophecy as having a near and far fulfillment, and the illustration I used was like bifocal lenses. We want to read this chapter with the near in view, meaning what happened in the first century. We want to read this chapter with the far in view, meaning what will happen at the end. And I've argued that the events that happened in A.D. 70 are a type or a foreshadowing or a microcosm of what is going to happen at an even greater level at the end of the world. So you have one event laid on top of the other event, and we can make sense of both of them if we handle them rightly in that way. So the big picture, the 10,000 foot view of this prophecy is clear. It's clear to the first century hearer, and it should be clear to the 21st century hearer. Rather than Jesus teaching that the end of the world will be in the first century generation, like the preterists think, and rather than us having to utilize a very rare application of a New Testament word, and rather than us having to view this generation meaning a 2,000 year period, 
And rather than us having to set aside normal rules of interpretation, if we just let the text stand on its own, I think Jesus describes that everything that's going to happen did happen in the first century. And those things are a type or a picture of the things that are going to happen at the very end of the world. I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think both are going to happen. And that's what this sermon is going to be, is to prove that to you. So Jesus could confidently say that all of this is going to come upon this generation. That's what they asked about. When is this going to happen? And yet at the same time, he is speaking about the end. And rather than having to make excuses for what he said, we should instead consider why he would say that And let's use the Bible to help us understand. So we've already discussed some of the more minor events that Jesus describes between A.D. 33 and 70. False teachers, wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, persecution. People don't have a problem with that. That makes perfect sense to fit into those years But what they really stumble over is that there is a certain kind of language in this chapter that seems to talk about the end of the world, and it could only be talking about the end of the world. And so three areas that I thought we could look at tonight, the first being apocalyptic language. Now, in my first sermon on this series, I talked about the difficulty with apocalyptic language Many of you were not here. Some of you were. I want to review it for you anyway. But this is a very important idea so that you understand what's being taught here. Look with me at Luke 21, 25. Jesus is answering a question, when is this going to happen, the destruction of the temple? He says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now people read this and think, well, come on, this this can't be about a temple being destroyed. This has to be the end of the world. I mean, we're talking about the very components of life on this planet dissolving. Matthew, Matthew's description is even more cataclysmic. In 24-29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, if these things all happened within that generation, why is there still a sun that shines in the sky? Why are there still stars at night? Why does the moon still give its light? But what you discover when you read the Old Testament prophets is that this is the kind of language that the prophets used when God was bringing judgment on a nation And it was always in reference to some kind of political upheaval. 
events that were so radical in the ancient world that it is described as the foundations of the earth are being shaken. And I gave you a couple examples in that first sermon. I'll be brief here. This is a prophecy about Babylon. I had, to, I had Richard read the, the whole, well, at least the first half of the prophecy. Isaiah 13.1, the oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Drop down to verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. What is Isaiah describing here? Well, he's describing the judgment of the Medo-Persians that God was bringing against the nation of Babylon. God was raising up one empire to conquer another empire, and this is how it's described. Or Egypt in Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8. The prophet says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Now, is God really going to turn off the lights in the sky? Or is the overthrow of Egypt so radical that it's described in these kinds of terms, these symbolic terms? Now, we do this too. We would say something is earth-shattering. We would say something is life or death. We would say something is world-changing. This event is world-changing. We're trying to use language to emphasize the greatness of what is happening. The extremity, the extreme nature of what is happening. Isaiah 34, 4 and 5 is a judgment against Edom. God says, all the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction." Do you notice some of this language? This is apocalyptic language. The heavens are going to roll up like a scroll. Or in the book of Joel, that small minor prophet, which is written against the people of Judah. This is God warning His own people through the prophet Joel. In verses, uh, verse 10, he says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Later on, verse 31, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Chapter 3, verse 15, The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. So you, you, you see the kind of language here that the prophets would use when it describes great political upheaval. Now, what we learn from these various judgments in the Old Testament is they are also a type or a picture of the final judgment. Wouldn't you know it? 
So these things happened historically. Babylon fell historically to the Medo-Persians. And the sun and the moon and all of this language was used about their fall. And they fell. But it's also a type of the final judgment at the end of the world. All of these are a type, are a picture of what's going to happen at the end. So Jesus can talk about these things in his discourse to his disciples about the fall of Jerusalem, and they would be nodding, yes, I understand what you're saying, because they know these Old Testament prophecies. It would make sense to a first century audience. There's nothing embarrassing about it. It's about understanding apocalyptic language and how it was used. So ignorance in this area is a primary reason that Christians have tried to get Jesus off the hook. So apocalyptic language. The second one is misunderstanding Jesus and the cloud imagery. Jesus in the cloud. Focusing on verses 27 and 28 in our chapter. Now this one, people are like, how could this possibly not be referring only to the end of the world? And this becomes the crux issue for which men like C.S. Lewis, as much as I appreciate him, completely folded because he did not understand these things. Verse 27, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now again, we are thinking about the end of the world. This sounds like the end of the world. The next thing to happen on God's timeline to to bring things to completion is the return of Christ. He's describing His return. I mean, come on. How do you fit this in to say that this generation is going to see these things? And notice, he says they will see the Son of Man. They will see Him. How could they see Him if His return was not going to be for 2,000 or more years and counting? Now what I want to offer to explain this is that something happened in A.D. 70 that involved a return of Christ as a judgment against the nation of Israel, and that becomes a type or a picture of the final return of Christ when he comes to judge the nations. In other words, the event that we await as Christians is the return of Christ, and what happened in that first century at 70 A.D. is a type of the final return of Christ that will happen in its fullness. Now, how can I make this kind of claim? You've read your Bible a bunch of times. You've never heard about Jesus returning at the destruction of the temple. What kind of biblical evidence could I possibly put forth for this? Well, we would have to first go back to one of the greatest Old Testament uh, messianic prophecies in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, God gives Daniel a dream, which is a vision for the future, and Daniel sees a series of nations that are going to rise and fall. So he sees 
Babylon, and then he sees Medo-Persia, and then he sees Greece, and then he sees Rome. And as we talked about last week, those are all discussed symbolically, but even uh, secular historians notice that Daniel was talking about these nations. And those things happened just as he said. And then after Daniel sees those nations in his vision, we have this in verse 13 of chapter 7. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, notice this, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees this nation rise and fall and another nation rise and fall and another nation rise and fall and another nation rise and fall with all of this historical accuracy and then he sees the coming of one who is going to establish his kingdom that is going to never fall. And what he records here is the ascension of the Son of Man to the throne of God and his vindication as being the one that God has appointed to rule forever. All of these earthly nations will collapse. There's one government that will remain into eternity, and that has been given to this one who is called the Son of Man. That is a messianic title, the Son of Man. We are told he is presented before the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God the Father, and he's found worthy because of what he has accomplished. And so notice the language here. He is called the Son of Man back in Daniel. He is coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is an important backdrop to what Jesus is describing in the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. God the Father receives the sacrifice of Jesus as the second Adam. He is exalted to this position of lordship He is given dominion over all things beginning at the time of his ascension throughout all of eternity. And this is what Daniel sees in his vision. But what about the people in A.D. 70? Was this some kind of visible event to where those who were living at that time would know that this was taking place? Now, there are a couple verses that have always been puzzling to me, not to the point that I thought they were embarrassing or anything, but they've always made me stumble a little bit, and I think they're related to what's happening here. And when I show you these verses, maybe you'll nod and you'll say, yes, I've kind of struggled with those verses too. Matthew 26, Jesus is is betrayed He is arrested. He is brought before the Sanhedrin. He's being interrogated by Caiaphas, the high priest. And in verse 62 of Matthew 26, it says, The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And notice this. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, I've always struggled to make sense of this. What is he talking about? Is Caiaphas, the high priest, going to be alive thousands of years later to witness the return of Christ? Or is what Jesus is talking about here, the judgment against Jerusalem and his coronation in heaven before God the Father, which Daniel describes? And rather than it being the final second coming, it's an event which prefigures the second coming, namely the vindication of Christ over His enemies, which are these first century religious leaders. How could Jesus say to Caiaphas, you're going to see Me coming with the clouds of heaven? How could He say that to him? Another verse that's similar and left me scratching my head is in Revelation 1.7. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Do you see the imagery? And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Now we know it's Revelation and John's writings are laden with heavy symbolism throughout the book, but why does he feel it necessary to mention within this larger group that is going to see Christ coming in the clouds are going to be the very people who crucified Him? Why does he say that? It's going to primarily refer to the Jews, I believe, maybe the Romans secondarily. And people try to explain this verse away and they'll say, well, our sins put Jesus on the cross, so in a sense we all crucified Jesus. But I think something more profound is happening here. All three cases have the Son of Man coming on the clouds, All three cases have people in the first century uh, witnessing Him. And so, what do I I deduce from all of this? I deduce that Jesus, in some sense, did return in A.D. 70. Not His final return, but some kind of return to bring judgment against the nation of Israel. And in some way... This was known to the religious leaders, whether it was visible to them or whether God gave it to them in some kind of vision. But it was made known to them that this is the one they rejected and He is vindicated in His judgment against them. In other words, God did not want them to know, God did not want them to think, Oh, the Romans, the Romans, the Romans, they're killing us. He wanted them to see 
the king of all kings being vindicated over them, and that the judgment of their religious system was because their rejection of him. He was not just some rogue teacher who passed through Israel for a few years and vanished from history. This was the one they were waiting for. He's the one the Old Testament prophets spoke of. And he is justified in his judgment against them. So how this all looked, I have no idea. There was a cloud, there was glory, there was the Son of Man, and somehow I believe these first century people saw this. The high priest Caiaphas, the religious establishment in Israel, the disciples, Jesus is vindicated as the king of Israel. So, how are we to understand these things? Well, if we understand apocalyptic literature, that's helpful. If we understand the backstory of Jesus and the, as the Son of Man coming in the cloud, that definitely opens things up. And I think the third thing people stumble over is the language Jesus uses about the kingdom being near. Verse 29. Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now many read this and think, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, He must be talking about the end of the world. The final establishment of God's kingdom on earth the new heavens, and the new earth. The scene is that Jesus is teaching His disciples. He's on the Mount of Olives, according to Matthew. He uses illustrations that He sees in nature, and so He points to a fig tree in their midst, I imagine, and He says, notice the fig tree. When its leaves start to form, you know what time of the year it is. It's the same every year. This is a very um, agricultural community. Even those who were not paying that close of attention would know, yeah, I've seen this before. You start to see the leaves and you know the harvest is coming. In the same way, he says, the disciples should know that when you see these things taking place, what things? Verses 7 through 28, all those things we've talked about, He says, then you know that the kingdom of God is near. And that feels very final to us. Okay, so after all these things happen, the end of the world. How then could Jesus be saying, all of this is going to happen in this generation? I mean, the kingdom of God is what we're all waiting for as Christians, isn't it? Isn't that like what we want? Isn't that what we pray, God? Your kingdom come, bring it on earth as it is in heaven. Don't we want the kingdom to come so that all of these 
promises will be permanence, no more suffering and no more death and no more sin, and we will be in the presence of God enjoying this new creation with joy everlasting? How could Jesus say, the kingdom of God is near? Well, this should be the easiest one to answer. I think this has the most evidence, most scripture support. Jesus began his ministry by saying the kingdom of God was at hand. Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, was Jesus describing 2,000 or, or, or was Jesus describing the end when the kingdom was going to come? So he's talking about at hand, meaning thousands of years? Or does Jesus describing that with his coming is the inauguration of the kingdom of God? We know that is the case because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they say, what's it going to look like when the kingdom comes? And he says to them, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Speaking about himself. So Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God on earth and then when he gathers his disciples and ascends into heaven, he pours out his Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost comes and now the disciples have the same Spirit of God that Jesus possessed and they are the kingdom of God on earth. And so what we have is an already and a not yet tension in Scripture where the Scripture describes something that hasn't happened yet and at the same time describes it as if it already has happened. It's an already and a not yet at the same time. It's equally true to say that we are waiting for the kingdom of God that is coming, and it is equally true to say that the church on earth is the kingdom of God. And you don't have to look too far to find this in the New Testament letters. Paul, seeking to correct some misunderstanding in Romans 14, says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the defining characteristics of the church or the kingdom is not whether you're vegetarian or not, the dietary laws. Some in the Roman church believe that. But he says righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The very same things that are the earmarks of true believers. We are part of God's kingdom. It has come in one sense, and it is coming in another. Colossians 1.13, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Paul is describing their conversion. And Paul makes it clear that this is a reality now. We are transferred from darkness into God's kingdom today. Notice he speaks of it as a past tense. This has happened. So what you have in the destruction of Jerusalem is this transitional period where you have the end of this Jewish age, 
if you want to call it that. And you have the beginning of this church age. And the destruction is like in this transitional period where uh, things are changing from one to another. The old is disappearing. The new has come. And because the new has come, the old has to go. And that's why the whole system had to be torn down. God did not have two plans of salvation. He didn't say, let's keep the temple going, and if you, can, if you can be faithful with your sacrifices and your offerings, then you can be saved. And for the rest of you all, Jesus is being offered for you. No, there are no two ways. The temple had to be destroyed so that the, the fulfillment of all of those things could remain. And what do you have in this new era? With Jesus, you have the kingdom of God. So, I try to draw this out on a chart here. If you think about Old Testament history, what do you have? You have creation, and then you have the birth of Israel, and then all of those years of God's dealing with Israel, and then you have this judgment against Israel in A.D. 70. So that's a timeline. But Christ comes, He brings His church. It's the kingdom of God on earth. And you have something very similar. You have a new creation instead of creation. You have the birth of the church or this true Israel, the fulfillment of Israel, spiritual Israel. And then you have at the end the judgment of the nations, which is the end of the world. So you have in that whole first era a type of, of what the second era is a fulfillment of. And notice they both have a return of Christ. One is against the nation of Israel in AD 70, and one is what that points to, the great and final return of the king who will judge the nations. The first time was for vindication in AD 70, the second time for consummation which is the end of the age. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis thought that the teaching of Christ in the Olivet Discourse was troubling, even embarrassing. He lost a debate over it. But the problem is not with Jesus being wrong or with us thinking we need to somehow fix what He said. We just need to rightly handle the word of truth using Scripture to interpret Scripture so that we may have a greater understanding of these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that Your word is sufficient. That if we dig... We find diamonds. And if we dig and we dig and we dig, Lord, the, these mysteries, these things that are hard for us to understand come to the surface. And they are good and they are just as you said they would be and we thank you for them. Please help us, Lord, as people who are faithful to search these things out. But Lord, not only that we may 
learn and believe these things, but that we may also practice these things. That we may live as people who are set apart and live as people who believe every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.